Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for these very important words that are included in Scripture. The word all is so powerful, Lord, to us. Those of us who are filled with doubt, those of us who oftentimes wonder, can we really trust you to everything? Can we really know that all our sins are forgiven? Lord, we thank you that these assurances are given to us in your word. You don't just say them to exaggerate. You say them because they're true. And we ask, Lord, that as we look into your word, uh, that your word would point us again to Christ, helping us realize that Christ is our victor, that one is, he is the one who fights on our behalf. We thank you that he never becomes weary, even though we do. He is never afraid, although we are. He never wants to give up, but we do. And so we, might, we pray, Lord, today that you might encourage us as we point and give our attention to not only the written word, but the living word of, Christ, of God, which is Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. If you'll find your way back into the book of Nehemiah, we're going to continue with our series in chapter 6 of Nehemiah. And as you're turning then, just want to remind you again of one of the most amazing things about the human body is this incredible, complex system that God has designed that when we're healthy and working the way our bodies are designed to work, a system that fights off infection. It's amazing. Think about it. Normal, healthy human body has this immune system that is designed to silently stand guard against all of these potential infections, diseases, bacteria, viruses, and things that are, seem to be lurking everywhere. And it doesn't just happen you know, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, the system is working 24 hours a day, hopefully 365 days a year, unless you have something that has compromised that system. And it continues on this state of alert throughout your lifetime. Now, there's obviously a number of intruders that are lurking about, but there's not a day when your immune system can let its guard down and somehow think or assume that the battle is over. Every day is a call to be vigilant for our immune system. And as I've thought about that, I think the same is true in the spiritual realm. There's not a day when we are not engaged in spiritual battle. Now, I know that some people think, yeah, I'm in a battle, all right. There are people in my life that uh, are find it very difficult to deal with. I'm not talking about that right now because the Bible tells us that spiritual battles are not with other people. Spiritual battle, the real battles that we face, it says, according to Ephesians 6, are evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. We are engaged in a battle against the forces of wickedness and therefore far too many of us assume that something must be out of order something must be strangely um, off off uh, path here off our normal um, course that we should be on if we somehow find ourselves involved in spiritual battle no the, the other is the opposite is true we are always to be vigilant we're always to be standing against firm, against the strategies and schemes of the devil. We shouldn't be surprised when the forces that we cannot see are operating 
behind the scenes to oppose us, to dishearten us, to cause us to want to give up in our pursuit of Christ and following Him. And so if you are a follower of Christ, you should not be too surprised if you're a person who has some form of influence over other people around you. And if your influence as a Christian is such that you are providing a godly influence on people around you who do not follow Christ, let me assure you, you are a person who is in the line of fire. People who are leading other people forward, people who are leading others toward a clear understanding of truth in Christ are more likely to be the focus of opposition than those who are just merely sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. And so if you're a parent, if you are a person who is discipling some other believer, if you're a person who is sharing your faith with someone else, if you're a person who's following Christ, I assure you there are numerous areas in which you are facing spiritual battle. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to as our return back to Nehemiah and our study there is to realize that Nehemiah faced many challenges that were different than the challenges you and I face, literally speaking. He was trying to rebuild a wall, and many of us are trying to uh, find Christ using us to rebuild lives in some ways through the gospel. But I'd like to consider three areas in which believers often find themselves in the line of fire in the spiritual realm and the, way, and the steps we can take to sort of stand and retain our effectiveness in the face of those challenges. Let's begin then in chapter 6 of Nehemiah. Notice verses 1 to 4 as we find the first indication of an area of battle that Nehemiah faced. Now, mind you, Nehemiah has come back from uh, his assignment as a, uh, a government worker, in a sense, uh, and he has left Persia. He's come back to his homeland in Jerusalem, and it was in shambles. It was a, a city that had crumbled with attacks by various nations and left to rot. There were people there, but the walls were down. And so here we, read, we pick up the story where he has now uh, encouraged many people to be a part of this rebuilding. And the building is almost complete. So they've been working now for a number of days, seeing tremendous progress. And now we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. That Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Shephirim in the plain of Ono. And they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. I would suggest to you that one of the ongoing tactics, if we look at this in the spiritual realm, is that the forces of evil against us oftentimes want using the subtle power of distraction. Distracting us from what's really to be the calling and the focus of what we're to do with our life. And that's certainly what's happening here with Nehemiah. A number of previous attempts to try to stop the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem had failed. And so now this trio of troublemakers comes, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they've come another strategy. 
toward Nehemiah. Here with these hardworking Jews, Nehemiah, they had applied themselves. They've almost finished the task of rebuilding the wall, making Jerusalem secure once again, making it a, a city that has walls to protect them so that they can carry out what God wants them to do and not be vulnerable to attacks of the, of the various enemies. And so here they come, and these three individuals are calling for a peace summit. They're calling to go to a neutral site somewhere where the both sides will come and they'll have come up with a plan learning how to live together because they realize maybe these people aren't going to go away. They really are going to try to live here in our backyard. It sounded rather plausible, a reasonable approach in some ways. But what appeared to be a peace offer was actually an attempt for Nehemiah to be removed from the scene before he had completed his job. The gates were not yet in place, which meant they still were vulnerable. They were still easily prey for those who wanted to attack them at any time. And so Nehemiah was being tempted to, to put down his, his own plans, his own agenda, and to accept this invitation and to be taken off, really, the main focus of what his real calling was there in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah, of course, did not leave the work. He refused the offer. And he knew that the building project, while almost complete, it was not finished. And so he, he said had he left the city, then he would have left all his people again vulnerable. And who knows whether things really would have been completed. And so his refusal there in verse 3, notice what he said in his response. Verse 3, I am doing a great work. Not great in the sense of who he was. And he wasn't sitting there boasting about it. He's talking about this is a great work because God is calling his people to rebuild the ruins here. God is doing this work among us. He says, I cannot come down. Why should, I, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I think what we find here in Nehemiah is a person with a clear sense of single-minded devotion. Here's a person who understands how easily we can become sidetracked. He's exercising concentration on the task that has been assigned to him by God. And he says, no, not once, not twice, not three times. How many times? Four times he's encouraged to go and pursue this plan. And he says no each time. What an interesting lesson that is for you and me. When in our lives, there are so many temptations to take on additional responsibilities to add to our already busy lives one more thing to do so that we can be even busier doing more things, some of which are not getting done very well to start with. You say, well, it seems like another a worthwhile thing to do. Take on another area of responsibility to do something that's beneficial to other people. But is it, and here's the question, does it undermine one of the significant primary commitments that God has called us to do. If you're a parent, can you be a parent that God wants you to be and be involved in 16 other areas of responsibility in the community, in the school, in the church, and, different, and not really spend much time with your children? We have to stop and think to ourselves, if we're to be effective, we must learn to say no to numerous things in our lives that seem helpful or seem not to be a bad thing, but we must say no to the secondary matter so that we can say yes to the primary matters, those that are really the most important, the ones that God has called us to do. 
Many of you know that exercise is an important routine in order to maintain our immune system in our physical bodies. And so exercising and using weights and using things that try to resist and getting our uh, heartbeat up and uh, doing the aerobic workouts, those are all good things. And this is the beginning of the year where the gyms are crowded with people, right? Everybody's, oh yes, I'm going to start doing this routine. You get to about February, March, people are, eh, maybe not even through January, I don't know. Um, but it's something that it is, helps our immune system the more we become active and the more we engage in doing healthy exercise routines. Well, there's a sense in which, spiritually speaking, one exercise we need to continually do is we need to continually repeat the exercise of saying no. Of saying, you know, this is not something I feel led to do. This is not something that's important in terms of the larger thing that God is calling me to be involved in. I only have so much time. And to be able to refuse certain offers, refuse certain pressures of things that we sometimes get caught up in doing that really isn't that important. Now, I can't answer that question for you as to what is the most important thing. But I do think that there's a very helpful insight, and you might want to think about this. If your life is super busy and you find yourself not able to keep up with all that you're trying to do, it might be a good time to sit down and say, what are my primary areas of of priorities? Can I name them? And finally identify other things we say, well, this is not a priority. This is not something I have to or should I really continually do. Very helpful book. I don't know if you're too busy to read it. Maybe you won't read it. It's called Crazy Busy. I've already talked about this a while ago. Um, Mike Sterlachi gave this to me for, by Kevin DeYoung. He has, a, he has a chapter in here called Mission Creep, in which he talks about the fact that one of the things we need to do in setting priorities, we do it because by setting priorities, it means I cannot do everything. Even Jesus did not do everything when he was here on earth. Did you realize that? Jesus left cities. You look, reread Matthew chapter 1. Jesus came to a city. He healed many people. But he oftentimes did not heal everybody in that city. He moved on to another city to preach the good news, calling people to repentance. And so there's a sense in which we all have limited amount of time. In the, in the real world of finite time, we have to discern between good, better, and best. And sometimes those things that are good, yes, they're good, but they're not really what I, is the best of what I should be investing my time in right now. There are certain seasons of life where you have to say, no, 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 I'm going to say yes to this. This is what I need to be doing right now. And that kind of thinking will really help us learn to exercise that important area of say no to certain things that are perhaps not as important. Certainly, Nehemiah did that, said it four times, right? No, 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 and no thank you for the last time. That's a helpful thing to do. Now, I'm not trying to suggest you just say no to anything that seems difficult or inconvenient, and that all you do is what you want to do. I'm not suggesting that. I am saying go back to the priorities and begin to pray and ask the Lord to show you what are the areas of most significant priorities whether it be your development of your own soul, your own relationship with Christ, the development of your relationships with your families, discipling your family, your wife or your husband or your children or your grandchildren, your involvement in your area of vocation, serving Christ there, your involvement in the local church, areas of where we know God indeed wants us to be involved. 
I would suggest also, and this is again under the first point of being distracted, is priorities help us because if I'm to be involved in serving other people effectively, then I have to steward my time. I have to know that I can only do so much, and therefore I have a sense of knowing that there are certain areas that I can serve well in, there are certain areas that I do not serve well in. It's not where I'm called to serve. It's not, it's not what I'm bent toward. It's not what my skills are. And therefore, we must be able to know our own unique areas of calling and our own areas of service. And there are some things you're going to have to prune off and say, I don't, this is not a good area of my use of time. I'm not good in this area. And so when you learn to take on tasks and troubles, some of them you need to say, you know, I need to let go of this. This is not something that really makes sense for me to do any longer. I'm going to ask so-and-so to do that, or I'm just going to uh, take a break from that. It's not easy to do. It's hard to say no. I'm one of those people that I'll easily say yes to many things, but there's sometimes I have to learn. If I don't involve myself in doing my studies for a sermon, then there's nothing left to give you on Sunday morning if I've given myself to many other things. And so these are areas where we have to continually ask the Lord, and through His grace and through His help of the Holy Spirit, we can think through our well-thought-through priorities. So maybe that's one of your take-home assignments is to say, I'll spend some time thinking about where is my time best spent? Where does Christ want me to make priorities for my time as I move forward in this year ahead? The next one is found in verses 5 to 9 as Nehemiah faced more challenges in his own battle here. Verses 5 to 9 of Nehemiah 6. We read, Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In this letter was written these words, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, A king is in Judah. Now it is reported to the king according to these reports, and some now let us take counsel together. And then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. Look at verse 9 to end there. But now, O God, Strengthen my hands. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. I would suggest to you that one of the areas in which Nehemiah had to face was the destructive power of other people's words. Other people's words, which sometimes includes even gossip. There are many other approaches that people can use, various forms of dirty tricks in a sense, and here is Sandballot comes up with one about an unsealed letter. An unsealed letter means what? It's meant to be read widely. There's no sense of privacy in here. You haven't licked the envelope, as it were. You didn't put the wax seal on it, which would keep eyes off of it that don't belong in reading it. No, this was a letter that was designed to be read widely in order to spread a rumor, to cast aspersions about Nehemiah's character and what he's really up to. And so therefore, they're impugning his motives. It was sought to undermine his integrity. Essentially, what this Sanballat was, guy was saying, if you can't distract Nehemiah, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to destroy him with rumors. Morris Mandel got it right when he said that gossip is the most deadly microbe. 
It has neither legs nor wings. It is composed entirely of tails, T-A-L-E-S, tails, and most of them have stings. Here is Sanballat conducting this verbal germ warfare against Nehemiah in a way that's really designed to ruin him. And most gossip obviously is destructive. More often than not, it does not include its sources. It's always hearsay. It's always sources that are never acknowledged. Anonymous letters sometimes when people circulate things. Another characteristic of a rumor is obviously there's a great deal of exaggeration and inaccuracy is oftentimes what is found in it. So it's no surprise that Paul, in writing Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he warns of the inappropriateness of gossip and busybodies who go around from house to house talking about things not proper to mention. He was saying that back before they had social media. They had to literally go house to house. Now we electronically can spread them quite easily, quite quickly, quite destructively. If you stop and think, you ask yourself, how many leaders or individuals who were significant in making a stand for what was right or for integrity or whatever, how many of them have been slain with this arrow of gossip? How many influential people have had their lives ruined by some sort of malicious rumor spread about by coworkers or a congregation or various forms of constituency? How many people have been scorched by a wildfire of rumor that was started by a jealous or disgruntled employee Someone who's out to get revenge. As someone has said, a gossip is a fool with a keen sense of rumor. Indeed, there's nothing funny about gossiping. It's serious business. Those who invent these kind of rumors, they often carry a message that's designed to destroy and it's quite devious in its effects. That's why the scriptures always warn us when it comes to to bringing a charge against someone who is a spiritual leader in the church, 1 Timothy 5. Again, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three. In other words, to prevent somebody bringing a false charge and somehow giving that rumor uh, much uh, airing. Well, what can be done then when we face such a threat? If we deal with the fact that there are people who use their words against us in various ways, obviously we cannot control what other people say. That's pretty obvious. But if in our response, we certainly can publicly deny erroneous rumors, and that's what Nehemiah sought to do. He realized that, listen, I can't stop this thing from going around, but I can certainly tell you what's the truth and lay things out here for you. And so he said that in verse 8. And he also realized in saying that, and there's only so many people that want to hear that, Verse 9 I find to be quite helpful in learning to, as he responds, he turns to the Lord and says, he's asking God for help to enable him to keep going and not to give up. He admits that in order to keep going, he realizes his hope and help are to be found in God because people will disappoint you. People will say things about you at times that are not true or not fully the full story. They don't really get the whole picture, and so they pick up on a part of it and can tend to sort of make things distorted in that way. And so what Nehemiah is saying here, I think he is, he finds strength in God because God knows the truth. It is God who knows that person's true intentions. And therefore, God, in a sense, knows our real motives. He is the true audience of what we're all about. 
and to know the real intent of this Sanballat fellow to demoralize Nehemiah. Here's Nehemiah saying, okay, God, I'm up against this battle here, so I'm looking to you to help me to strengthen my hands that I might be able to lead this people to finish the task and, and therefore not give in to the fear of what other people think of me. And I would suggest to you one of the greatest ways we fight the battle against the difficulties of people who oftentimes uh, are twisting and distorting the truth is that we, uh, we appeal ultimately and fall into the safety of the gospel which says, God knows my true identity. He knows the truth of who I am. He knows that I am a person who is corrupt, a person who fails, a person who has many areas of fault in my life. But in Christ, I am dearly loved. I am fully forgiven. I am a full child of God, given all the privileges and benefits that come with that. And therefore, I can find security in knowing that God knows who I really am and he is not going to turn away from me and he knows the truth that because I'm in Christ, therefore I don't need to have everybody who thinks wonderful about me. In situations that are difficult to untangle, we fall back on the truth that ultimately some matters are beyond our control. Many matters are beyond our control, are they not? But our hands, our times are in the hands of God. And along with praying, which again is such a helpful thing, do you notice that as a pattern in Nehemiah's life? He prays throughout this book. Problem and difficulty and challenge after challenge, he continually turns to God. And so I say to you, don't let fear of what other people think of you rob you of the joys of turning to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and enjoying his audience and enjoying the fact that you can pour your heart out to him and he knows and understands you through and through. There is no greater audience. There is no greater place to turn. There is no greater place to find strength to keep going than to turn to Christ in prayer, which doesn't it lead to the previous issue that we had to talk about of being distracted? How many of us have time we carve out of our busyness in order to spend time with God in prayer? I didn't say it, and, I'm out, and now I'm going to add it. I'm going back to point number one, if you don't mind. I'm just going to add one more point I forgot to make, and that was this. Some of us need rest, and we need to make less priority of media. We need to unplug our machines. We need to turn our phones off. We need to get away from our pads and our, our phones and, and different things that are constantly asking for our attention, and we need to lay them aside. Do you turn yours off at night, young people? Do you turn them off at meals so you can talk to the people who are there sitting in the same room with you? Do you have a meal and share it with other people? These are all very important ways in which we can say the priority of what is important is that I have time to think about God and talk to Him. And we are a culture that's obsessed with constantly being online in tune with other people, but we're missing some opportunities to connect and open our hearts to God. I would just suggest you going now back to point number two. Sorry, I'm bouncing all around here, but follow me in my craziness. Psalm 26 is a helpful text to meditate on if you'd like to think further about this. If you've had this problem with what people think of you and things have maybe been distorted about you or people are not really understanding the real you, I would just suggest you read through that psalm as David cries out again to God and he falls back on the fact that Listen, God, you know who I am. And my track record 
sort of helps people understand who I am, and you know my, you know my real me. And I think one of the things that we can say, if you focus on developing a character over time by the grace of God, that you are known to be a person who has a, a reputation that is reliable or honest, that goes a long way to helping you fight against the fact that people may speak of you or distort the public image of who you really are. If people know you that you're a person who takes a stand for honesty, if they see you as a person who refuses to bend the rules for your own advantage, if your spouse knows you to be a person who is telling the truth and you don't uh, misconstrue things or look suspect and they know you as a person who, who uh, is honest about the situations you face, then it's more likely that you're going to weather those storms of rumors. And Nehemiah, I think, got the job done because God enabled him to find comfort knowing that what? He can continually turn to the God who knows him and the God who is truth. And therefore, he found comfort knowing that what? Even Jesus was mistakenly identified as a glutton, as a drunkard, as a person who is crazy, as a person who has a demon. Those are all alleged about our Savior. And how did Jesus deal with all those? He just kept doing what he was called to do. Can't change people's thinking, but you can seek to say what? I'm living for Christ. I'm living for God. I'm living for the Father. And do the things that God calls you to do and live a life of integrity by the grace of God. All right, real quickly, the third thing I want to point out here, verses 10 to 19. Very interesting challenge here, which I can, again, relate to very easily. It has to do with the area of fear, a crippling power of fear. Verses 10 to 19. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetbel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. How's that for stirring up a little bit of anxiety producing, you know, fear uh, inciting? But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered this prophecy against me because Tobias and Sanballat had hired him. He was a hired false prophet. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Now look at verse 14, he prays to God. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sambalat, according to these words, works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, Elul in 52 days. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been, go, had been accomplished with the help of our God. And also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah and Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehonanon had married the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah. Verse 19, moreover, they were speaking about the good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten 
me. Did you catch that? Four times he talks about these are things were done, verse 9, verse 13, 14, and 19, in order to make me afraid. Here's this false prophet making up this story in order to get him so fearful that he would take a step in a keeping with what a pagan would do. Pagans were known to believe that the best place you could go is to flee to the temple of whatever god you worship, assuming that that god is therefore going to be safe and so are you. And so that was a popular idea among the heathen who would find safety in the courts of temples. Here's Nehemiah being urged to, again, leave the work out of fear and break the clear law of God. What we have here, of course, is, is helpful for us to be reminded that Nehemiah found security in the knowledge of the clear word of God. It is the scriptures that will always keep us in, in, in the place of blessing, in the place of where God wants us to go as we follow the scriptures. Numbers 18 would warn that an outsider, a person who's a non-priest, if they ever came into the tent of meeting or to the place of the inner holy of holies or anywhere in the temple courts, they would be put to death. The temple was not a hideout. It's not a safe haven for people who are generally just average, ordinary laymen. It was a place of offering sacrifice for priests. So had Nehemiah followed this erroneous advice, he would have ended his moral leadership. He would have given in to his fears. Had he followed this wrong-headed strategy, he would have lost the respect of all the workers that he had now built their trust and their respect as well. And so he wouldn't have been able to govern any longer. And what saved him from this terrible advice? Well, clearly, it was his discernment to understand that this was clearly not of God. Nehemiah knew the Word. The Word of God does not deceive us. God does not contradict Himself. Jesus said, Your Word is truth, John 17, 17. And so that's why in Psalm 119, the verse says, Hiding the Word of God in our hearts does not lead us into sin. It does what? The opposite. It helps us avoid sin. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So those of us who have the light of God's word were less likely to stumble as a result of false teaching and people who are led by their emotions. So those who know the word of God are committed to obeying it. We can find a tremendous amount of courage to move forward, to tackle the things that God calls us to deal with, not because we are competent in ourselves, but because we're convinced that God is not a God of lies, His word is true, His promises can be relied upon. The challenge for us is to replace our fear with faith in God. Hebrews 13, maybe you could find that verse just in the last few moments here. We conclude with this wonderful verse. He's going to cite and quote two previous verses found in the existing Bible at the time, that is the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, the writer quotes twice from the Old Testament. He says this, I will never desert you, God says, nor will I ever forsake you. That's found from Joshua chapter 1. That's God speaking. Notice the word never. He doesn't say, most days you can count on me being there, but there's some days I, I can't not, no, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. So that we confidently, which means with good courage or boldly, we can say, and then he quotes Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. 
I will not be what? Afraid. What shall man do to me? Where is courage found? By looking at your own track record of how much you can accomplish on your own, by looking and sizing up other people in other situations. Ah, oh, I can handle this, no problem. No, fear, the way to overcome fear is to increase our confidence in God. It's to go back to the cross and realize what did Christ do on the cross? What He kept his promises to provide a, a, a one who would die in our place and take our, the wrath we deserved upon himself. It is being able to see that Christ did rise from the dead, showing that God did keep his promises in that regard, and therefore we can not have to be those who face fears on our own. We come with the sense that God is with us. God is for us in the gospel. It is God who can enable us to deal with things that cause us to be fearful, anxious, and afraid. And Nehemiah saw the day when finally that wall was completed. There will come a day when we will finally see our lives completed. The question is, are we learning and, and are we moving forward or is the forces of opposition causing us not to advance, not to grow, not to become people who are taking God at his word, praying to him, seeking him out, and learning to grow as we deal with these various forms of opposition. May God help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, all of us, facing our own battles, our own struggles. Some of us, Lord, have chosen to sit on the sidelines. We don't engage in the battle because we've never changed sides. We're still in the on the for, we're still allied with the forces of worldliness. We're still following all of the, the our cues from the evil one, from Satan. Think that we can handle life on our own. I pray, Lord, that you would bring a deep sense of conviction today to realize how deceptive Satan is and how what an awful lie from the evil one that we can somehow operate in life on our own. We just have to become better people and we'll find our way to God. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here believing that lie, that they would repent of that today, that they would forsake the forces of evil and ally themselves with Christ, who is truth, who gave himself for us. Lord, I pray for many of us who fight, face our own forms of challenge and who become weary in spiritual battle. I pray that you would help us today to strengthen our hands for battle, strengthen our feet for battle, Lord, strengthen our minds to engage and to, to arm ourselves with your truth, to be people who pray more earnestly, more consistently, more throughout the day, and who seek you out, Lord, and who take you at your word, and who don't let fear keep us back from sharing our faith and taking on challenges and problems and situations that require a lot of work and, and, and persistence. So, Father, we pray that we might be encouraged as we look at our Savior, who is our victor, the Savior who took on that great battle against the evil one and won it. We pray that we might be encouraged through him this day as we gather before his table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.